Good morning, Grace family. Good to see you all. I am deeply grateful to be here this morning. Been uh, traveling quite a bit and preaching. We got to preach on the fatherhood of God and discipleship in Belfast, Donna and I did, and we got to teach about justification by faith alone on a Reformation tour. And then I was at Forest Home teaching on how you grow as a Christian and then teaching the adults at Hume the same thing. And then two weeks ago, I was privileged to be able to preach the theme that Hume Lake Christian Camp is doing to the high school kids. And the theme is the answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? It couldn't be more important and relevant. And I'm so thankful they had that theme, which is the truth of God, the truth of his word, the truth of Jesus teaching in person, the truth of our sin, the truth of the gospel, and the truth of living the Christian life. So it was a great theme. The Tuesday night, just the second day of preaching there, a young man came up to me, beautiful young man. I, I doubt he's ever shaved, and it was just beautiful to see him come up, and he just had tears streaming down his face, and he said, I want to trust Jesus for salvation right now. And we, I hadn't even given an invitation to do that yet, but it was just beautiful. I prayed with him. I got together with him the next day, and he... I asked him, if I had asked you yesterday morning, if you were a Christian, what would you have said? And he said, yes. I would have said yes. And I, I said, why? And he said, because I was raised in a Christian home, and I went to church my whole life, and I knew a lot of answers. And I said, so what happened last night? He said, I, I never really knew I needed forgiveness. I knew a lot of Christian things. And, and so it, it was amazing. I believe that young man went up on a bus on Sunday and went home the following Saturday having been brought out of darkness into light along with quite a few other kids who stood up and trusted Jesus. What a privilege to be part of in representing you all, representing grace as grace extends in these kinds of ministries. This week I'll head to Hume SoCal and preach those same messages to the high school kids who are there. And so it's just been a, a wonderful summer to see God at work in beautiful and powerful ways. So I'm very thankful to you as I represent our church family in, under your authority and with your blessing and prayer. So thank you for being part of this ministry with us. We're very grateful. Well, this theme of truth couldn't be more important. These poor young people to whom I've been preaching have never known anything in, in the way I view it other than a world of incoherence. <laughs> a world where things that make no sense and fail to correspond to reality, nevertheless are embraced as deep and subjectively meaningful. And so to help them understand that what's true is what corresponds to reality and what reality is is what corresponds to God's understanding of reality. He's the creator. He's the one who knows. We get all sorts of limited perspectives and confused perspectives, and we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the Bible says, but God is the God of truth. And deep down, even though we think we want a world of subjective truth and subjective reality where we get to make it up, deep down, I don't think anybody really wants that. Because, first of all, nobody actually lives that way. We all hold each other to a standard of truth outside of what someone may think should be true. That's why we have laws where we expect people to act in certain ways whether they want to or feel like it or not. We still hold them to those laws. Even in a secular society, we do that. 
So as Christians, we recognize that we can form our lives to reality, to truth from God's perspective. And no matter how much we want to get away from the idea of reality is anything but we, what we make up, deep down we really want what's real, don't we? Just read The Velveteen Rabbit. Has anybody ever read The Velveteen Rabbit? What does that little bunny want to know? Am I real? What, what does Pinocchio want to be, right? A real boy. Deep down, we want to be real. And we realize that how we feel or how we think doesn't determine that, but reality does. And God's the one who's created reality and determines it. And so it's a joy to be people who have the truth of God's word and have the ability to go to him to find out what truth is and what falsehood is. Because I don't want to build my life on lies. I want to build my life on what's true. Even if at times I don't like what's true or wish it weren't true, it still is. We sort of get that in the realm of science, but in actually matters that really matter, like what the meaning of life is and what lasts forever and what doesn't, we need God to tell us what's true. So I'm thankful we have his word. And today we're going to find out about what it means to be real before God. Ian Bounds said, who you are before God on your knees is the only thing you are. That's who you are. Who you are before God on your knees. You may be able to have a front stage life that's very impressive to people in society, in social media, but who you are before God on your knees, that's who you are. And God determines who is living the real life as he's designed it and who isn't. Who's living a fabrication of that real life. Everybody I talk to who knows I moved from New England and lived in the Midwest for seven years assumes that the major draw to live here is the weather. For us, it's always been about the people and the ministry, not about the weather. But even the weather is not something that actually would be my first choice. Don't get me wrong, I love the nice weather. But I don't think it's good for your soul where nothing dies every year. There's something so good about watching everything die every year, like where I lived for the first 30 years of my life. So uh, there's an artificiality to, to everything never dying, and I like the drama of weather. I like weather that makes me feel small and completely out of control. But there is something I would deeply miss just about this area, obviously the people by far the most but as far as the culture where we live do you know what I would miss maybe most about this culture the food I, 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 I drove home from Hume last night and I got off the freeway and I started driving through Santa Fe Springs and I saw this easy up and I knew what it represented I knew what that and there were lights that Easy Up represented what? Authentic Mexican food. Yes, and I was so tempted, even at midnight, to pull over and get a, a uh, El Pastor burrito. I was, because, because that is authentic, right? It's not Taco Bell. There's nothing wrong with Taco Bell. Get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. But please, let's not call it authentic, right? It's not. It's something else. Just... Just call it something else besides Mexican food and just let it be. But I love that there are 
seemingly unlimited opportunities on every corner to get real, not just Mexican food, but Thai food and Vietnamese food and Japanese food. And it, it, down the road, there's a German deli. Did you know that? Right off of Beach uh, Imperial, yes? So you know what I'm talking about? It's incredible, the authenticity of the food. And I started thinking, I love authentic food. Like, I, if I walk in a place that is representative of food from another culture, uh, then I, I'm, I'm skeptical if it's mostly white people in there. I, I really want to see people who are Thai in the Thai restaurant. You know what I'm saying? Because they know the difference between the real thing and the fake thing. My kids can even tell the difference between Taiwanese food and Chinese food. It's just a beautiful thing, and we can find it. We can find real Taiwanese food. Most of you don't know the difference between Taiwanese and Japanese food. We do, because I have three Taiwanese kids, right? And so authenticity is beautiful. So I said, I wonder how you define authentic food, right? So I looked it up. What is authentic food? The word authentic is used to describe an object that's not false or copied. It is a genuine, it's genuine and real. And then for food, authentic food is food or drink that exactly meets its description, and also meets a person's reasonable assumptions of its character, right? So that, that's really good. So in other words, if you expect something from food to be authentic, whatever, whatever kind of food it may be, and you eat it and it's not authentic, then you recognize this is fake. Now here's the challenge, though. Taco Bell's wildly popular, in large part because people don't know the difference. <laughs> between the real thing and the fake thing. And so it's just fine to them, right? And, and again, it's, it's not to say, uh, don't take this too far, but, but the discernment, the ability to know the difference, to have discerning tastes, discriminating tastes, where you can tell the difference between something that's legit and something that isn't. You know, if you eat a steady diet of fake food rather than authentic food, you'll even start to prefer the fake. It'll be desirable to you, and you'll miss out on centuries of cooking that have perfected the real deal. And so today we're going to find out straight from Jesus the difference between authentic followers of Jesus and fake ones. And it's in Luke chapter 12. Let's go to God's word now as he teaches us the difference between being real and being fake. Luke 12, we're just going to read 1 through 12. In the meantime, what's that mean? Well, in the midst of all the persecution he is enduring, especially after talking about these woes, calling out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. In the meantime, as the Pharisees, as we see in the previous two verses before this chapter starts, they began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So in the meantime, you'd think maybe he'd go underground. You'd think maybe he would pull back, fly under the radar. No, he pushes down the pedal even more. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, 
that they were trampling one another. Wow, popularity, people. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom, you, whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man, men, the Son of Man, will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There are three points I want to highlight in this passage this morning. The first is, be real because you fear God and not man. You're able to be real as a starting point because you know who God is and you have a healthy, sacred, holy fear of Him, which means you don't fear anyone or anything else. And we'll talk about what that means. Two, be real because you trust God because you're convinced He cares for you. He's not just powerful. He's not just all-knowing. He's not the judge of all the earth. He has the hairs of your head numbered, and he cares about you intimately and personally and profoundly. You can be real because God cares for you, really cares for you. And three, you can be real because you depend on the Holy Spirit to live courageously and authentically. Be real because you fear God, not man. Two, be real because you trust God that he really cares for you. And three, be real because you depend on the Holy Spirit to live courageously. Now, I just want to say, our culture especially needs this message. Put Jesus in your mind here. What, what is he thinking? He is thinking about the persecution he is enduring. And he realizes that when he endures persecution, his disciples will as well. Yes, immediately, but throughout the history of the world, as people follow Jesus, they will be persecuted. He's got his disciples in mind, these friends to whom he's speaking, but he's also got those of us who are following Jesus right here this morning in mind as well. And he wants to bring a word of comfort. He wants to bring a word of courage to bless us and inspire us and motivate us to persevere, even in the midst of persecution, because the Bible throughout tells us that's part of the Christian life. This message would not be as needed if we were in parts of India, if we were followers of Jesus in China, 
or in the Middle East or where some of our grace partners are serving in this very moment. It wouldn't be as needed. It would be more evident. But we in a culture that is relatively free from persecution, and I use that word advisedly, doesn't mean you're, you're coworker doesn't roll his eyes at you, and you might even lose a job because you're a Christian, and I suppose that's approaching persecution, but he knows that these men to whom he's speaking will be murdered for their faith. All but one was executed for following Jesus, and so he teaches this message with a profound sobriety and seriousness and a desire for them to know what they're up against and have what they need to persevere. But the fact is, as much as we hate persecution and pray for those who are being persecuted, the fact is persecution often brings integrity. Persecution chases away the fakers. It chases away fabricated Christianity. And so there's a blessing even in persecution. One writer puts it this way. These are keen detectors of imposters. You ready? Suffering and pain and death for Christ's sake. These are not endured by pretenders. These things have a blessing with them because they sift out the fakers and leave the real ones. Persecution does that, but so does ease. So does comfort. Uh, It's amazing how many things will lead us away from God instead of toward Him, and we need to be aware of what those things are. This morning, Jesus is highlighting persecution, the difficulty of following Him. And so here we have highlighted the uneasy relationship the disciple has with the world. We're not friends with the world. We're not cozy with the world. We love the world, for God so loved the world He sent His only Son. We love the world, but this this world we live in is opposed to the things of God in its fallen state. Now, the world has a goodness in it, a beauty in it, a God-imaging reality to it, but when world is used the way I'm talking about it in the Bible here, it's this way of living and being that's opposed to God. And so we don't Make friends with the world. Jesus says if you're friends with the world, you're an enemy of God. And, and so John says that, actually. And, and so, so we've got to realize that, that we don't have this comfortability with the world. You know, I hear a lot of people saying these days, you know, Jesus was friends of sinners. That's true in that he moved toward them and he loved them and he met them where they were But if you define friend as okay with them as they are right now, you're missing the core of Jesus' ministry, which is love that pulls people out of darkness and out of sin and into freedom and liberation. Sometimes I hear people talk about what a friend of sinners Jesus was as if he didn't care about their sin. And that couldn't be further from the truth because he loved them so much. Of course he cared about the darkness their sin brought into their lives. And so disciples have an uneasy relationship with the world. So the questions before us this morning are, who are you going to live for? Who are you seeking to please, man or God? Whom will you trust with your reputation, with your future? Will you trust the one who has an ultimate authority over body and soul, 
Or will you fear and trust popularity or the temporary successes of this life? Will you trust in God, which will lead you to confess Jesus before men? Or will you fear men, and that will lead you to deny Jesus before men, even if your denial is silence, saying nothing about your stand for Christ. And so Jesus is teaching us this morning, really, a fundamental teaching on trust. Where is your trust? Where is your dependence? Where is your reliance? What are you really depending on? Are you depending on the things that just come horizontally in this world? Are you depending on the things that are just the result of human realities, even if it's a doctor's prognostications about your health, whatever it is, or the, the economic situation and the forecast of that. Where is your dependence? Where is your dependence? Is it in your 401k? Well, if that's the case, you're a little uneasy right now. Where is your reliance? Where is your trust? That's the question. And Jesus is wanting us to know the key to life is a life of integrity, trusting in God. First thing we see here is it's a crowd of many thousands. There's popularity. Meanwhile, contrasting with the popularity and woes that precedes this event and the warnings that follow, it shows that popularity is fleeting. Just like on, on Palm Sunday, they're cheering Hosanna, and then just a week later, he's cheering crucify him. If we depend on being cool or trendy or popular or on the right side of history, as people keep saying, then we will fail to have integrity. If, if those are our goals, there's nothing wrong necessarily with those things, but they cannot be our goals. They cannot be what we pursue, what we value, because they're fleeting, and those things are fickle, and they come and go. Popularity is fleeting. And we need to know as disciples of Jesus, if that's how you define yourself, that following Jesus is and will be costly. It's costly to confess him. And Jesus knew the difference between spirit-enabled fruitfulness and fleshly success. And he completely rejected fleshly success and lived for spirit-enabled fruitfulness. We need to know the difference. I've said this for years at Grace. And at times we need to be willing to sacrifice, even sabotage short-term success as the world defines it for long-term faithfulness and fruitfulness. And I dare say the church, especially in the United States, has had that reversed for a lot of our history. Popularity, trendy, innovativeness, success, cool. Uh, it, it, we're just as cool and good as the world at what they do. Whatever it is that gets us thinking in this, this, this way, we've got to realize that so-called success and so-called so popularity was constantly being blown up by Jesus, and he calls his disciples to the same. And so he warns us against hypocrisy that's motivated that way. And he uses this yeast imagery from the Passover in the Exodus, from Exodus chapter 12. And he says this hypocrisy, this phoniness, this fakeness of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, is something you need to be fully aware of and avoid it at all costs. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't, don't be plastic. Don't be fake. Be authentic, he's saying. 
This yeast imagery is powerful imagery. It, it points us to this, this observance in the Passover of not putting yeast in the bread because you don't have time for it to rise because the Lord is coming and he will bring deliverance. And so if you chose to put yeast in your bread, as simple as that and harmless as that may sound, what it's saying is, is I don't trust God. I don't think he's going to come through like he says he will and bring us out of Egypt. So I'm going to make bread how I like it. That doesn't need to... Uh, just doesn't need to be evacuated as soon as God shows up. So they're, they're either waiting with unleavened bread, with patient endurance and expectation, or they're just cooking the way they always had. As if God hadn't said, get ready to go. I'm getting you out of your bondage. So they don't trust God. So leaven becomes a symbol of unfaithfulness to God, not trusting God. And that's what he says. Beware of this leaven of the Pharisees. They have this thing that, that is imperceptible until it takes over and it represents unfaithfulness. Have bread without yeast. Have integrity. Now, I think it's important to realize there are two kinds of hypocrites, I think, in the church. There are tares, people who aren't true believers, and there are two kinds of those. I think the tares, the people who are in the church who aren't real believers, come in two kinds as well. I think there are tares and there are wheat, both of whom can be hypocrites, but the tares come in two kinds. One, there are people who aren't real and know it. And they're in church anyway for selfish gain. You know, the televangelist who's asking for money every five minutes. The one who's in it for selfish gain, just playing the system, knowing Christians can be suckers because we're so stinking nice. And so he intentionally moves into an environment where he knows people can be easily taken advantage of. That, that, that is a charlatan. But there's another kind of tear that don't know it. They're not true believers, but they think they are. Like that young man, as sweet as he was before he became a Christian, he wasn't real. And he came to realize it. He was a tear among the wheat, and he came to realize he was a tear among the wheat. He was self-deceived. He thought knowing the right answers and having a Christian family and growing up in church was enough. And so that's another kind of hypocrite. It's a tear. It's someone who isn't real among the wheat but didn't realize it. But then there's another kind of hypocrite in the church, and that's those of us who are true believers but are prone to hypocrisy. And I dare say every one of us is dealing with hypocrisy right now. You may have been walking with Jesus a very long time. Richard and Ruth Dix still have to be concerned about hypocrisy. Am I not right, Rich? Right? One of the most godly man and woman I've ever met in my life, as real and authentic as, as a believer, you're going to find. But they know because they're so real, they need to be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees hypocrisy because we all love to have an outward reality that conflicts with our inward reality and so don't be a hypocrite and we those of us who are here need to realize that hypocrisy is a temptation for all of us it's a source of it, it comes from insecurity it, it comes from desiring things that we don't trust God to give us and so we need to realize there are two kinds of hypocrites in the church, and there are several traits of a hypocrite. I'm going to read, how many do I have here? I came up with eight traits. I think I came up with these. Pretty sure I did. These are in my notes. They may have come from somewhere else, but it's been so long, 
I'm not sure anymore, and I usually footnote something I got from somebody else, and this sounds a little like me, so I think, I really, I looked on the internet if I could find any of these in this, this way, and I couldn't, so I think this is mine, but whatever. All right, so here, here are some traits of a hypocrite. I'm just going to go through these quickly. Ready? His walk doesn't live up to his talk. He says one thing, does another. Jesus, Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's amazing how simple the Christian life is at times. Two, he lives to make an impression on his fellow man. And there's no place this happens more in our day than social media. Always image shaping, making an impression. And, and young people, we old people struggle with this as well. But I especially want to say to you, in this day, you've never known anything but image maintenance in social media. And so be on guard to how deceptive this can be and lead you down the road of hypocrisy. Three, a hypocrite is motivated by titles, honors, and respect. You ever meet somebody who insists you use their important title when they, you talk to them? Four, he focuses on peripheral issues and neglects the weightier things. Five, he focuses on the outward appearance rather than the inward realities. Again, it's all about image. Six, his morality depends on circumstances. Again, when persecution comes, the priorities change, the principles change. Did you ever wonder why there's so many strip clubs near airports? Have you ever noticed that? And all other sorts of opportunities. You know why? Because people who run vice-oriented industries know human psychology. And they understand how weak we are when we feel anonymous. When we get out of our normal circumstances in the areas of accountability in which we live, and we can get out of those and we can fail miserably to live up to who we say we are. It's one of the things I love about La Mirada. When I told Donna Viola called about a job in 1998, her first words were, I'm not living in L.A. <laughs> I understood that, and I said, we will do everything we can to insulate ourselves from everything you think you're going to hate about L.A. And it's been wonderful. And actually, when we moved to La Mirada, and then when we had a church within a couple miles of our home, and when we had uh, a job half a mile from our home, and it, it started to feel very small town. It's one of the things I love about La Mirada. It, it's, it's pushing 50K, right? But it feels really small town, and there's something so good about that. And it was way more blue-collar than I thought it would be, which is I, lo I love. That's where I come from, blue-collar folks. And so I felt at home here, and, and it was great. But I started to realize that I couldn't get away with being a jerk anywhere. You know, I want to be impatient or irritable in traffic, pulling out of Stater Brothers or on the, in the aisle in Stater Brothers. And I'm thinking, that guy could be sitting at church this Sunday, right? I, and it, there have been times I've, I've gone too fast coming to church because I'm late down, down Santa Gertrudis and I blow by someone realizing oh, they're going to pull in the parking lot right behind me and see what a, 
what an unsafe driver I am. I'll just keep going all the way to Whittier and then turn around and come back in a different automobile, right? Because you can't get away with anything when you have accountability in a world where people know you and you know people and your lives intersect and it's just a beautiful thing. So our morality can't depend on our circumstances. I have a friend, every time he checks into a hotel by himself, the first thing he does is take a photograph of his family out of his suitcase and he puts it on the television. So even when he's alone, he can't feel alone because they're looking at him in this hotel. It's really good to never be able to feel anonymous. And so, seven, hypocrites are tough on others and easy on themselves. Man, do I feel this, hypocrisy. Do you know the areas I'm hardest on people? The ones I'm weakest at. I don't know if you can relate to that. But, like, impatience is one of my biggest problems. And if someone's impatient with me, I'm very impatient with their impatience. And we can be quite sensitive to things we really struggle with rather than being gracious, particularly in those areas, because we should be able to sympathize with the struggle. And finally, hypocrites live by their own power for their own glory. It's been said, lip piety needs no grace. You depend on your own fleshly abilities. And one more point I want to make before we dive back into the passage. I I think it's important to realize there's a big difference between integrity, biblically defined, and authenticity, culturally defined these days. Hear me out. I hear a lot of people saying, "I, I like what's real. Like my students fill out personal information sheets for me in my courses, and I ask them say two things you love and two things you hate. And I bet about 70% in the loves have real people, honest people. And in the hates have fake people. Right? And, and I, I always want to find out, what do you mean by fake people? And what I'm realizing is that people are defining integrity as someone who does and says what's going on in here. Whatever it is, and I'm real, and I'm authentic, and and I'm raw, and I'm honest. The problem is, a lot of times, what's going on in here isn't true, and isn't good, and isn't helpful, and isn't edifying. But it's almost as if in our day, that as long as you're honest about what's going on in here, that's good. That's not how the Bible defines integrity because the Bible defines integrity as living according to what's true and what's good and what's right, sometimes in spite of how you feel. And living according to what's true and right and according to God's perspective, sometimes in a way that's conflicting with what you feel where you actually say what Jesus said, not my will but thy will be done in those struggles. God loves that. That's integrity. Integrity is not just being all honest and real and raw no matter what's going on in there. Because what will happen is you'll be real, but you'll be a real jerk. You'll be a real fool if you just give voice to all this stuff going on. I'm not saying you don't have friends you just can vent with. Darren's heard it all from me. He, he feels a lot of freedom to talk to me too. 
There are times where you, you, can, you can vent, you can say stuff, but we need to be wise. Say, is this helpful? Is this edifying? Is this true? And good friends call each other out. And say, so, well, you know that's a lie, right? I know you feel that way, but you know that's not true, right? See, support and encouragement as Christians doesn't mean you affirm whatever somebody's feeling. It means you listen. It means you care. It means you weep with them. But it doesn't mean you give it an affirmation. It doesn't mean you give it a like or a heart if it's dishonoring to God and destructive to people. We need to know what real love is. It's not just affirmation no matter what. And so we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be real. We want to have integrity. And the first point, be real because you fear God and not man. God knows all. He's everywhere. He's the judge. And verses 2 and 3 tell us all will be brought to light. Twice, emphatically, he says, it will be brought to light. So this is so helpful. This life we live that's duplicitous, that is hypocritical, we need to realize there's nothing hidden. We think there's a hidden life behind the front life, but there isn't. Nothing's hidden. And before God, especially, nothing's hidden. And you need to realize what a major theme Judgment Day is in the Bible, in Jesus' teaching, in the entire Bible, the Old Testament, the epistles, all of it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And will expose the motives of the hearts of men. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Romans 2.16. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secret thoughts through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So we need to realize that everything we do, everything we think, everything we say, all our action, all our speech will be evaluated and made public before God. And it's public before God before that day even. Now, nothing is private. Do you need to hear that about just the internet? I mean, the inter- nothing, you know there's no such thing as private on the internet. Please know that. Remember turning in my laptop to the computer guys, half of whom go to Grace. The guy who runs the show goes to Grace, Steve. And I remember handing in my laptop thinking, wow, those guys have the ability to see everything I've looked at for the past year and a half right now. Fact is, they've been able to do that all along, right? And I'm thinking, wow, um, should I be concerned that they will see I spent so much time looking at the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial and, and all these things that, that could potentially be embarrassing. It's really good to have this realization that nothing's private. Nothing's private, but we can live as practical atheists. We can be way more concerned that our roommate just caught us looking at pornography than Almighty God has been there the whole time really is amazing. That, that's a Charnock idea, practical atheism. You say you believe in God, but you live as if he's not there. And so we've got to be aware of the difference between thinking there's privacy and thinking there ever is before God. There will be an eventual exposure of every evil private deed, which makes hypocrisy, uh, hypocrisy useless in the long run, right? Isn't it interesting when you find out someone does something heroically, or generously without them telling you how much more meaningful it is than when you find out another way. Right? Someone does something amazing, and, and they said nothing about it, but someone tells you it's, it's more meaningful, right? Because you have a sense, okay, they didn't do that for show. Well, the same is true of evil. What we do in private, even though there's nothing ultimately private before God, 
that's what really shows authenticity. There's not a show going on. Fear of man leads to a double life. The assumption is the expectations of men and God will clash in this teaching of Jesus. And so, fear God. Fear God because he's all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful and all-sovereign. And he holds all of our eternal destinies in his hands. And the fear of the Lord is a massive theme in the Bible. Jesus says here in verse 4 and 5 of Luke 12, fear him. Don't fear man, but fear him who after he's killed has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So he's saying God is the judge of all the earth. Don't fear human beings who will stand under his judgment as well. Fear him who has the eternal destiny of everyone in his hands. That's why the Bible says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fear of the Lord is this wonderful idea of God's enabling to see him for who he is and reverence his authority, obey his commands, and hate sin. Those are the practical outcomes of it. I love Ferguson's, Sinclair Ferguson's uh, perspective on it. A proper fear of God is a mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. It's a love for God which is so great that we'd be ashamed to do anything which would displease or grieve him and makes us happiest when we are doing what pleases him. We need to have a healthy, holy fear of God. Not the fear of an abusive father. Not the fear of an absent father you can't trust to come home and take care of the family. But a healthy fear of a good father. You know, moms used to say when the kids were out of control, wait till your father gets home. And it really used to mean something. In a good way. The kids start, mom, can we talk about this? Does it have to go that far? Can we just keep this in-house, Mom? Right? Doesn't mean Mom can't be serious disciplinarians, but there should be something about wait till Dad gets home. And so we have a healthy fear of God that is so strong that we would never think of running from Him, knowing that's an impossibility, and knowing the only solution to our problems is to run to Him. That's the kind of fear that we have in God. The reason we sin, the Bible says, is because the fear of God is not in us. That's the reason for our sin. The protection of God, we're told in the Bible, is the result of fearing Him. He encamps around those who fear Him, rescues them. Taste and see the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. How often do we pray for protection, for traveling mercies? Well, the Bible said there's a prerequisite for those things is fear of the Lord. We should pray for fear of the Lord more than we pray for protection. And I think we have that completely flipped. And so that's the starting point of wisdom and protection. It's why we live the way we do. We live according to God's promises, cleansing ourselves in the perfect fear of God. See, it all starts with seeing God for who He is. It's not a moral category or an ethical category first. It's a profoundly theological category. We are found perfect in the fear of God. And the, our fellowship has a unity that's the result of, what do you know, fear of Christ. Be subject to one another. Submit to one another in the body of Christ because you fear Jesus so much as the great chief shepherd. Look, it's our source of confidence, the fear of the Lord. And it's our fountain of life. It's a source of delight for us. Is that amazing? And Jesus is our example in this. Listen to this word of the Messiah, what he'll be like in Isaiah 11. 
The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. We need to be people who are continually seeking a healthy, holy fear of the Lord. And, and, and then we will have a courage and a boldness that results from that. And so we're able to fear God, so we fear no one or nothing else. And he addresses his friends here. He turns to them and says, dear friends, don't fear temporal loss, martyrdom. Don't give in to pressure. Because you fear God so much, you don't fear anyone or anything else. Isn't it amazing? Do you know what the number one phobia is? Public speaking. You know that? You know what number two is? Death. People would rather die than speak in public. It's amazing. Because, well, we feel vulnerable in front of people. We, we feel like we, we can't, can't um, give our, our best impression or whatever it is. And we say stupid things like I've said countless times when I'm speaking. And so, so we feel weak and we struggle with that. And there's so many things that can strike fear in our hearts. And you know what? Few of us will ever face martyrdom. But are we willing to give whatever... God calls us to give. You know, most of us in here will not die for our faith, most likely. But God wants us to give him whatever it means, whatever it means that's keeping us from authentic Christian living. And take a stand with Jesus boldly. So do we seek lives that are comfortable and controlled and protected? Or do we seek to be used by God in a place of challenge where we need him to provide for us or nothing will come of it. Maybe the first step is to walk across the street today and talk to that neighbor you've lived next to for years but have never initiated a conversation with and pray that God will enable it eventually to get to Jesus. Maybe it'll be that simple today. So fear God and fear no one else because he has the power of eternal life or eternal judgment Jesus preached hell over and over again. But we find out that there's a solution to this judgment. There's an answer to the problem we all face, and it's God's amazing care for us. Look what he says. Don't worry. Don't worry. I, you don't need to fear because God loves you. Look what it says. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies the cheapest thing you could buy animal-wise in the marketplace? It's like a, a pack of gum at, at the store. Five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten but before God. Isn't that amazing? God's gone to the funeral of every sparrow. A little bird dies, and God knows about it, and he cares. And not one of them is forgotten before God. He has the hairs of your head numbered, particular, intimate, personal, attentive, persistent care for you. He says, fear not, you're more than, worth more than many sparrows. That's, that's funny. Of course you are. And so he says, based on God's intimate care for you, follow him, trust him, depend on him to take care of you. He cares for you and knows you within his whole creation. So live courageously. Confess Jesus. Jesus is the key to your eternal destiny. Confess him and he'll confess you is what he's saying. Deny him, he'll deny you. This before angels idea. This is the reality understood in heaven, not just on earth. And so he's laying it out. There are only two directions your life can take. Rejection of Jesus or acceptance of Jesus. There's no middle ground. 
And this denial of Jesus is not a one-time event. It's a pattern of your life. It's a Jesus-denying life trajectory rather than a Jesus-affirming life trajectory. Peter denied Jesus three times. So it's not just something that's the result of one event or even three events. It's the general pattern of your life that will include denial along the way. But what is the pattern of your life? What's the trajectory? What's the direction of your life? Is it, is it saying yes to Jesus and affirming him in your words about him, speaking well of him, or is it a denial and rejection of him, even in ambivalence toward him? Jesus becomes the key to our eternal destiny and this care God has for you that's particular and intimate and personal and persistent is seen most importantly and most clearly in Jesus, not just being the one you follow, but being the one who died for you and rose for you and lived for you so that you could have eternal life and a restored relationship with God. If you've never trusted Jesus, this sermon really doesn't apply to you yet because this is about being real and following Jesus. But to do that, you got to follow Jesus. And that begins by not following him, but depending on him. Not persevering yet, but trusting depending, collapsing into Jesus, resting all your weight on him and his finished work on your behalf. If you've never done that, please don't leave before you come and talk to the folks up here waiting to pray with you or one of the leaders on the way out about this because I want you to have a relationship with Jesus and know the challenge but the eternal reward and the abundant life that comes with following Jesus. He's the key to the eternal destiny of all of us. And so this is a summary description of the life of denial, that you, you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working. The Messiah's on display, offered to you. And God is saying to you this morning, don't choose to reject the work of the Spirit that he's doing in your heart. Don't choose a life that rejects God's work through the Messiah that the Spirit brings to your awareness, but accept it, receive it in faith. It's a massive difference here. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit gets all this, this discussion. But, but I think it's basically just rejecting Jesus, especially when the Holy Spirit's working in your life to accept him. Don't harden your heart today if God is working, if he's calling you. Because the Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a simplicity to this we don't want to miss. So fear God. And be real. You don't need to depend on anyone or anything. And trust that God cares for you and be real. And finally, depend on the Holy Spirit and be real. He turns to his friends and he says, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. You're going to be persecuted in the midst of speaking well of me. But what's the key to that happening in the way it should? The Holy Spirit. See, instead of rejecting the Spirit, depend on the Spirit. Not just to become a true believer, but to live as a true believer. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There will be spiritual provision for you in your speaking well of Jesus. Disciples will face persecution, but the Spirit will enable you to endure and proclaim even more boldly in the midst of that persecution. So in, in other words, rather than speaking against the Spirit, they will be ready to speak through the Spirit. And God will provide the words when we're challenged. So don't be anxious. And this is the only kind of preaching God really uses, spirit-enabled, spirit-empowered preaching. 
with a deep confidence in God's justice and sovereignty and omniscience and love and grace and mercy and personal care, which leads to lives of integrity. It's amazing to me how quickly we forget about our history. I went to a lecture once saying we need to get away from this campus crusade, four spiritual laws, Bill Bright approach to missions and evangelism. And I went to my class after that and I said, how many of you 55 students know who Bill Bright is? One raised his hand. Said he's an athlete, right? I said, no, not at all. He's a businessman who started Campus Crusade for Christ and in other ministries and maybe had more, more fruit in personal evangelism than anyone in history. But almost nobody knows who he is. Listen to what Billy Graham said about Bill Bright at his funeral when he died. Bill Bright lived for one purpose and one holy ambition. That was to glorify God by introducing as many people as possible to living faith in Jesus Christ. He has carried a burden on his heart few men I've ever known have carried. A burden for evangelization of the world. He's a man whose sincerity and integrity and devotion to our Lord has been an inspiration and a blessing to me ever since the early days of my ministry. When I was at Forest Home a few weeks ago, I stayed in the Biltmore cabin, and that is where Bill Bright and Henrietta Mears and Richard Halverson, who became the chaplain of the Senate, um, had a prayer time with several others that caused a revival that spread around the world in astounding ways. Here's what Bill Bright said once. A Christian can't lose. If we live, we go on serving him. That's an adventure. If we die, we're in heaven with him. And that's incredible. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live incredible, adventuresome lives. Would you help us to be real? Lord, for anyone here this morning who's never trusted Jesus and has never started the journey of reality with Christ, I pray that they would this morning turn from sin and self to saving faith in Jesus. Lord, for those of us who are walking with Jesus, are in relationship with you through him, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be increasingly real and that we would be aware of the inauthenticity in our own hearts and words and thoughts and ways we live. Father, help us to know you well so we can know ourselves well and live according to the teaching we've heard from Jesus in this passage this morning. Lord, we want to be real. And so help us, wherever each of us may be this morning, toward that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.